Give me about 30 minutes, I'll have you out of here, okay? In the 17th century, Sir Isaac Newton introduced the world to something he called the universal law of gravity. This law, simply stated, is what goes up must come down. Legend has it that the components of this law clicked in his mind one day as he was having his afternoon tea and an apple fell on his head from the apple tree he was sitting under. And while it's certainly true that the law of gravity holds for this created world, I maintain that it is not necessarily universal. It's often true that what goes up must come down. But God has seen to it, in the case of a seed, what goes down must come up. This is true all around us in the world of agriculture. Every tree you passed on your way to church this morning was the result of a seed that went down but had to come back up. The law of seed, time, and harvest prophesied in the book of Genesis will never cease as long as the earth remains. It's true of agriculture. It's true in seed, time, and harvest. And it's also true concerning the life of Jesus Christ, our Lord. The Old Testament's first prophecy concerning Jesus Christ called him a seed. In the New Testament, he is constantly referred to as a seed. Jesus was a seed. Seed has the intrinsic instinct to come up, but it cannot come up without first going down. The seed needs to be cast down, you understand? Because only through the process of being planted in the ground can the seed be conflicted enough to die and then release the inner life that's inside it. And not only was Jesus a seed, not only is the agricultural world ruled and governed by seed time and harvest, but every believer in Jesus Christ is a seed as well. You may not realize it, but your life is a seed. Your gifts is a seed. Your talents are seed. Your finances are seed. Your time is seed. And you may feel like you've been buried by problems and trouble and anxiety and depression. You may be going through the darkest time in your life, but a seed needs it to be dark. A seed needs it to be conflicted. A seed needs there to be pressure around it. A seed needs to feel like it's falling apart because only then can the inner life that's inside it spring up and come above ground in a new form. And I want to start this message with a prophecy to everybody who's going through a down time. God sent me here to tell you, you are destined to come back up. If you're in a down time in your finances, listen to the preacher. You are destined to come back up. If you're a down time in your family, you are destined to come back up. Whatever it is that you feel buried by, remember you're not buried, you're planted. 
And if it hurts real bad, if you've been crying a lot, if you feel like everything is about to break around you, it's a sign that growth is about to spring from the surface. I just want to tell you that growth is about to spring up from the surface. What you thought was killing you is transforming you into what God ultimately intended you to be. But you cannot become what he intended you to be without the conflict of having dirt thrown on you, without the conflict of pain all around you, without the conflict of the hatred and the turmoil that causes the outer encasement of the seed to break before it releases the new life. You are destined to come up. There's a lot of people in here. Help me preach. Elbow your neighbor. Say, you're destined to come up. <clears throat> in his letter to the church at Ephesus, the apostle Paul compares Jesus to a seed which bore fruit after dying. I'll remind you again of the question that he asked. He says, what would be the benefit of him ascending? Everybody knows about the ascension of Jesus. Everybody knows that Jesus got up. But what would be the benefit of him getting up, Paul said, unless he first descended and went down into the lower parts of the earth? The lower parts of the earth. What is he talking about? Here we approach the controversial yet often neglected subject of what was happening to Jesus' spirit and soul while his body was in the tomb. The Old Testament refers to hell by using the Hebrew word Sheol. The New Testament refers to hell by using the Greek word Hades. Now, Hades was colloquial for the New Testament believers because you must remember that all of Jerusalem, all of Israel at the time was occupied by Rome and the Greeks had a tremendous influence in how the Romans lived and did their business. So in the New Testament, when they wanted to talk about Sheol, what they knew as Sheol or hell, they used the word Hades. But whether you're talking about hell, Sheol, or Hades, here's the main definitions, Old Testament and New. It means the underworld, the land of the dead, the great chasm or divide. Now, the scripture reveals that this underworld had two levels. Everybody say two levels. The first level was named paradise. Paradise was a peaceful prison. Every person that was righteous, that believed in God, that followed God in the Old Testament, every person that died righteous before Jesus went to the cross their soul, their spirit, their essence went to paradise, the peaceful prison. The second level of the underworld was called torment. Every person that died without faith in God, every evil person was sent to torment. So it was one place with two levels and a great divide. You see there, on uh, what would be your right side of the screen there, it represents paradise. Then on the left side of the screen, you see the fire and the torment. That's what Jesus was talking about when he said, hell is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth where the fire never is quenched. And they're so close that you can look over from one into the other. 
but there is a great divide. So Jesus gives us some clues about this in Luke 16. I want to draw your attention there. Luke 16, 22. Jesus said, so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom was another term for paradise. The rich man also died and was buried. And being tormented in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. So look at that. You've got one man that's in paradise and you've got one man that's in torment. And they're so close that one man looked up and saw the other. Verse 24, then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted. And you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed. So that those who want to pass from here to you cannot. Nor can those from there pass to us. So every person that died, righteous and unrighteous, went into the underworld, the land of the dead. The righteous were held in a peaceful prison called paradise. The unrighteous in torment. Why didn't the righteous people that died before Jesus went to the cross just go to heaven to be with God? Because even though they were righteous by their faith, they were still sinful because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And God cannot share or inhabit his direct presence in the midst of sin. So if the righteous would have inhabited the presence of God, they would have been judged instantly by the sin. They would have been destroyed because the blood of Jesus hadn't been shed yet. The righteous were operating only off the Old Testament sacrifice system, the blood of bullocks and goats. And the blood of bullocks and goats was enough to cover their sin, but it wasn't enough to cleanse it. So all souls ended up in the underworld. Another clue Jesus through the New Testament gives us of this is in 1 Peter. I want to show that to you. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. The apostle writes, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Look at verse 19. By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. I hope you're beginning to see the broad reach of the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross. He wasn't just dying to save the souls of people in the future. He was dying to save the souls of all of the people who had died in faith before him. When he went down into the lower parts of the earth, Peter said he went down there to preach. Look at your neighbor and say, he went down there to preach. He went down there to preach. What did he preach? 
What did he say? How did he rescue the souls that had been trapped there in torment? One interesting note that I discovered in my study was that Abraham in theology was known as the captain of paradise. That's why it's referred to as Abraham's bosom. That God appointed him the leader of all of those imprisoned spirits in the underworld. And the question is, why? Because God needed somebody down there that had great faith. And Abraham is the father of us all in faith. And Abraham was down there to tell all of his children that descended from him, God's not going to leave us in this prison. God made us a promise to send a Messiah to redeem us. And I don't know how he's going to do it, but some kind of way, God is not going to leave us here. He is going to deliver us. And for thousands of years, Abraham had been preaching the same message to all of those souls locked in prison. One day, our change is going to come. But when Jesus died on the cross and descended down into the lower parts of the earth, there was a another message that had to be preached. And the message Jesus preached to those souls locked in prison was the same message of the gospel that saved our soul. And that amazes me that when it came time to save the dead and all those who died in faith, God didn't need a new message or another message. It was the same message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The same message that saved my soul is the same message that saved Abraham's soul. The same message that saved your soul was the same message that saved David and Deborah and Daniel and Elisha. It was the same message. The gospel of Jesus Christ got all of those righteous prisoners out of their cells and it's still getting people out of prison cells today. No matter what kind of bondage you are locked up in, it's the same message. God doesn't need to write a new book. The message of the life, ministry, death, burial, and resurrection resurrection of Jesus Christ is enough to set you free. Give him praise if you believe it. It just encourages me that if the cross worked for them, if the cross got them out of the prison they were in, I don't have to be in anxiety when my time to die comes because I have confidence on where my soul is going. My soul has been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ shed on Calvary's cross. And there's a lot of blessings in this life worth praising over. There's a lot of blessings in this life worth shouting over. But the greatest blessing comes when we all meet that appointment with death. And we can cross over the great divide with the confidence that my soul has been washed in the blood of the Lamb. He went down into the lower parts of the earth. To save the believers in paradise. But he wasn't done yet. That work wasn't finished. Now a lot of theologians disagree. With the doctrine that Jesus descended. All the way into hell. Because they don't like the way it sounds. They, they say that that means he would have had to suffer twice. Suffer on the cross. And then suffer in hell. They think that that concept means that the cross wasn't enough. But the cross was enough to finish the work of your salvation. 
That's why Jesus said, it is finished. But that's not all he was doing. That wasn't the only work he was doing on the cross. Because he went down and preached the gospel to the imprisoned believers. But then the scripture says he went further down. Not just to paradise. He went further down into torment. Down into Satan's throne room. Down into the kingdom of darkness. He went all the way down. I said Jesus the seed went all the way down. And like any seed, when the seed goes down in the ground, what happens? It changes form. Ooh. I said what it was before it went underground is not what it is once it goes in the ground. You don't hear what I'm saying? I said what the apple seed was before it went in the ground is not what it looks like when it goes beneath the ground. A seed changes its form. So above ground, Jesus was our weak, suffering, humble Savior. But when they put that seed in the ground... I said when they put sweet Jesus in the ground, something changed. His form changed. Above ground, he was the suffering servant. But beneath ground, he became our warrior king. And he went down and preached to paradise. Got them out and taken care of. Then he went further down to the devil's lair. And he wasn't suffering. He didn't have nail-scarred hands or a bruised back or a crown of thorns on his hand. He went down with a scepter of brass, walked over to the devil himself, and began to knock him off his throne and proceeded to take the keys of death, hell, and the grave so that he could rise up with all power. The work of salvation was finished on the cross. But he had to fulfill that first text we read. Because God said when humanity collided with sin for the first time and Satan being the culprit of it. God said there's a day coming. Where you're going to bruise his heel. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we're healed. You're going to bruise his heel. But he's going to bruise your head, your authority, whatever crown of dominion you thought you had. There's a day coming, devil, when Jesus is going to come himself and bruise your. So he walked down into the torment, not as a as a uh, next step in the process of saving our souls. He walked down into torment to take all the authority. Hey, yeah. All the authority. All the authority in the natural realm and the spiritual realm. All the authority. He took it back from Satan. And then the scripture says in the book of Philippians chapter 2, as a result of that, God highly... Oh, yeah. God highly exalted him 
and gave him the name above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow check it out things in heaven things on earth and things under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father but he couldn't get that until he went down he couldn't ascend with all power until he descended into the lower parts of the earth look at um Look at the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verse 14. It says, having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against us. You know how when you get pulled over by the police... There's a lot I could say, but it's Easter. I'm going to be good. Be good. You know how when you get pulled over by the police, if you were just speeding, they'll write how fast you were going. Right? But if you were speeding and you had a suspended license, they'll either take you to jail or they'll list another infraction on the ticket. And if one of your brake lights were out, they'll list another infraction on the ticket. And when you go to court, you got the handwriting of the cop. Oh, God, you got the handwriting of the cop telling the judge this one's guilty and this is how much you're supposed to fine him. What we don't realize is we're all walking towards an appointment with the judge, not on earth, but in heaven. And the handwriting of the law of God is against us because we've all sinned. Some of us are professional sinners. Any professional sinners in here, you don't do it little, you do it big. Thank you for the two hands that raise. You know how to sin. And when you're good at sinning, what you have to realize is you got a lot of handwriting that's against you. You got a lot of laws that you've broken. You got a lot of judgment coming your way. But Colossians said, having wiped out. Oh, every sinner ought to get happy looking at those screens, seeing that scripture. Hey, God. Hey, thank you. Having wiped whatever charges was on you when Jesus went to the cross you don't hear this preacher I said whatever charges were on you when Jesus went to the cross having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us which was contrary to us he has taken it out of the way having nailed it Oh, Jesus. I don't know about you, but I got a lot of stuff hanging on the cross. I got a lot of guilt hanging on the cross. I got a lot of shame hanging on the cross. I got a lot of stuff I'd rather not tell you about hanging on the cross. But suffice to say, when you see me praising, let me show you why. I'm praising because all of my past, all of my guilt, all of my shame, all of my sins have been wiped out and nailed to the cross. 
house. Is there anybody that's like me that's happy about it in the house? I said, is there anybody that's happy about it? But that ain't even the best part. Verse 15 says, having disarmed. Oh, Jesus. Having disarmed principalities and powers. Those are the rulers and authorities of the underworld. Having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them. Triumphing over them in it. Now, when we say disarm today, it would be like me talking to Chris who happens to be carrying a gun in his waist. And if I were to say to you in colloquial societal terms that we would all understand, and I would say, Chris, come here, I'm going to disarm you. You would think I was saying I was going to take away his gun or take away his knives or his weapons. But that's not what that word means. That word is quite literal. When it said Jesus disarmed them, it means Jesus tore their arms off. You seen Braveheart? 40% of y'all left me. You seen Braveheart? I didn't ask you if you liked it. I asked you if you've seen it. You seen Braveheart? Where the warriors on the battlefield didn't just kill their enemies. They cut their arms and their legs off. That's what Jesus did when he descended into the lower parts of the earth. He disarmed the enemy. The enemy's still there. But for the believer, he's been... There is no curse. There is no witch. There is no hex. There is no dark magic. There is no divination that can succeed against a believer in the Most High God. There is no power that can supersede the blood of Jesus Christ because Jesus himself by his sacrifice has disarmed principalities and powers. Now, take that understanding of disarmed and apply it to the scripture when it says that the devil has been defeated. Defeated. Didn't just cut his arms off, cut his feet off too. Now you may think I'm reaching but there's a prophetic picture of this in the Old Testament. When the children of Israel sinned and lost a great battle to the Philistines, the Philistines confiscated the Ark of the Covenant. And they took the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of God, and they took it into the tent of their God named Dagon. First night, the Ark was in the tent with Dagon. The Bible says they came in the next morning, and Dagon, the idol, had fallen over. Because every knee. Every knee. But then they stood Dagon back up. Next night they came in. 
his head was chopped off. His arms were chopped off. And his feet were chopped off. In other words, the enemy has been permanently disabled. I want to tell all of you that are up under attack right now. All of you that have children up under attack, all of you that are facing things in your region or in your family tree, generational curses, things from the enemy that have been meant to take you down. The enemy has been permanently disarmed and defeated. You ought to make the devil mad and shout, the devil is defeated. The devil is defeated. You ought to shout it over every attack coming against your family. The devil is. Every attack coming against your health, the devil is. But he couldn't do none of it. As long as he stayed above ground. The only power a seed has to change its form is when it goes down. So that means for you, the conflict you've been going through is good. If you're a believer, if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, if you belong to God, all this trouble is going to do is cause you to turn into a new form. A more powerful form. A form with higher character. A form with higher morals and responsibility. You'll be a better you on the other side of this. Everybody going through a crippling problem. Let me tell you, you'll be a better you on the other side of this. The enemy is defeated. He can't kill you with it. You'll be a better you on the other side of this. Going through a challenge with your child, you'll be a better you and they'll be a better them on the other side of this. Let me speak to what you're going through. You'll be a better you on the other side of that financial challenge. You'll understand your money better. You'll know how to budget better. You'll be better with things. You'll be a new form on the other side of this being fought in your marriage you'll be a better wife on the other side of this you'll be a better husband on the other side of this you'll be better in your relationship on the other side of this and the trap of and the trick of the enemy is to, to try to convince you that there's not another form if you didn't know what an acorn could become If you didn't know that acorns become oak trees when they're planted, you would look at the acorn and hear someone describing its potential and think they were absolutely out of their mind. Just like some of you are looking at me like I'm out of my mind. There's an oak tree in you. There's greatness in you. There's strength in you. Don't kill yourself in seed form. Wait to see what happens when you change into what you were destined to be. 
Don't give up and quit and walk away from God while you're still in seed form. Wait to see what happens on the other side of this. Because God's greatest purpose and intention for your life will be seen once the seed goes through its process of planting. You're not going to be destroyed. No weapon formed against you will be able to prosper. They've all been disabled. You're not going to be taken out. God's using the challenge and the warfare and the pain for your benefit. David said, it was good for me to be afflicted because through the affliction I learned the ways of the Lord and the way of the Lord is to turn that conflict into enough pressure to cause you to change forms and be something you never would have been without it so I call you today to survive I call you today to faith in the resurrection power of God I call you today to stay in the fight because better is coming stronger is coming more things, more opportunities, more open doors are coming than you can see right now. Because as of right now, in many ways and areas, you're still in seed form. Stand to your feet. Give the Lord praise. Nothing, nothing in this world the power to stop your come up you hear those stories you know and sometimes you see the evidence of it you ever been walking across concrete and there's a crack in the concrete and grass is springing up you wouldn't think grass seeds were more powerful than concrete you wouldn't think grass seeds would be stronger than what was buried on top of them. But when you are a seed, it doesn't matter what life lays on top of you. When you are a seed, a seed has the power to break through. Oh, I feel that. A seed has the power to break through. And that's what I prophesy over your life. The spirit of breakthrough. To break out. To break above ground again. To come out of this trial. To come out of this problem. To come out of this situation. And to come all the way up. I speak elevation over your life. I speak increase over your life. I speak that the power that's resident in a seed would be in you. And I speak that the Lord your God would bless you and keep you. That God would keep all that pertains to you. And that God would use your life in extraordinary ways for his purpose. Everyone say it with me, Lord Jesus. I'm a sinner. I've committed sin. Today I ask you to forgive me. Wash me clean with your blood. I believe you died for me. And I believe on the third day you rose again with all power in your hand let your resurrection power and your resurrection life live in me let it be in me as a seed and in my seed make my seed powerful make me a breakthrough seed in Jesus name
Give the Lord a hand praise all over. Listen, I wish I could touch every single one of you, but whatever it is, you're coming out of it. Whatever it is, you're coming out of it. Whatever it is, you're coming out of it. My brother right there, there's been a three-month threat over your life. But the Lord says to you today, it will not destroy you and you will not be taken. You are coming out of it. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. In fact, grab your neighbor by the hand. Let's pray for each other. Say, neighbor, you're coming out of it. In the name of Jesus. Now give God one more shout. Give him one more shout. Oh, yes. Oh, we praise you. Oh, we praise you. Listen, we're about to close our service. I hope you have a wonderful day with your family. Our church family has been for the last several weeks preparing a very special seed because we understand that there's power in a seed once it goes down in the ground to change its form and come back in a new way. When you sow a seed financially into the kingdom of God, your money becomes like a seed. When you plant a lime tree, you sow a tiny little lime seed, but what you reap back looks nothing like what you sowed. It comes back in a new form. In the kingdom of God, when you give money, you were giving in one form. When it left your hand, it was one form. But when it comes back, it comes back in the form of what you were believing for, praying for when you sowed. Many of you know our story of how we sowed a seed for our son Levi. When he was in critical condition, they expected him to die. And we sowed, we gave money. When it left our hand, it was money. But when it came back, the harvest was the healing of our son. And it's beautiful when you think about seed. Every seed creates two things. I'm almost done. I'm two minutes over the time I gave you when I started. Every seed creates two things. You need to know this, especially if you're sowing. Every seed creates two things. It creates first a root system underneath the ground. Then it creates a fruit system above ground. So Paul, when he was writing concerning Jesus as a seed, he said, when he ascended, he gave gifts to men. What is that? That's the harvest. That's the fruit system. What was the fruit of Jesus coming up? Salvation, healing, deliverance, prosperity. That's the fruit. But he also left a root system. Because he says later in the text, he gave some apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Do you see what he did? He instantly gave a fruit system. But then he left a root system in the earth that would continue his work and has been continuing it for 2,000 years. The message Jesus preached is still being preached. It's being preached all over the world this morning. And Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. But he left a root system in the earth. 
When you sow a seed, it's a one-time seed, but it creates a root system in your life. Yes, it brings a harvest, but it establishes a root system. And one reason so many believers don't have any roots is because they don't sow any seeds. Don't get pastoral on Easter Sunday. One reason most believers don't have any roots is they never sow seeds. So early in the service, we gave God what he commands. We gave him the tithe. But here's the opportunity where we get to give as a seed and believe God for supernatural activity in our life. And you never sow a seed without naming it. When you sow today, name what you're expecting. Write it on the back of your envelope. Write down what you're believing God for. Hold the music for a second. Just play lightly. What do you need from the Lord? What's going on in your life? Where are the mountains? Where do you need a miracle? Where do you need God to do something not natural, supernatural? Is it in a relationship? Is it with your business? Is it with your children? Is it a health concern? Where do you need supernatural activity? You can't be a Christian unless you believe in supernatural activity. The working of miracles, God doing special things. And if he did it once, he can do it again. If he did it for me, he can do it for you. So what do you need from the Lord? Now, many of our church family have prepared to do this. All of our guests, I want to invite you to do it. You certainly don't have to do it, but we're bringing our best seed to the Lord today. Those of us that have been preparing, we've been preparing for several weeks, and we're bringing God what, what equals a week's income, our very best seed. This week, we're giving it all to honor the weekend that he gave it all for us. But if you're a guest or if you've never heard about this or if for some reason you haven't been gathering, I want to challenge everyone else that's, that's not giving that amount. Consider giving your very best today. If you can give three days salary or a day salary, what do you make in a day? What do you make in a day? Why don't you honor Jesus for what he did this day? in getting up for you and giving him an offering, putting a seed in the ground, attaching faith and expectation to it, and watch what God will do in your life. I want you to lean over and get an offering envelope in your hand, and I want you to take some time, just a moment, and I want you to think about what you need from the Lord. The scripture says to make your request made known unto God. Write down what you're believing for. And I want you to know we're believing with you. We're coming into agreement with you for the greatest miracle harvest when that seed changes forms and comes back up that you have ever seen in your life. Bow your heads all over the house. Lord, we prepare to offer this seed up to you. And we thank you for all you've done. We praise you. And we ask for you to work special miracles for people as they give into the kingdom of God. You thought I was worth saving. Sing with us. You.